0: Mark chapter 14. We are going to begin this morning at verse 12. By nature, we're curious about the lives of other people. We want to hear what's going on in the lives of people that we know. We want to hear what's going on in the lives of people that we don't know at all. All we know is We've seen them on the movie screen. Or we've seen them on the television. And still, where we're interested. People buy the magazines or the newspapers that talk about what's happening in these lives. And people are also interested in what happens in lives in history. If you've ever read historical biographies and read about great men and women through history, you find it's very interesting. It's very compelling to hear about what happened in a person's life. Sometimes I wonder... When we come to the Gospels, if it's not easy for us to take it just as sort of another gossip sheet or another tale about somebody's life, but it's something so much more than that. What we're going to talk about this morning presents to us Jesus Christ, not just as a man to whom interesting and dramatic and compelling events happened all around him, but we're going to consider Jesus Christ this morning as somebody who did something who initiated something, who brought something in that nobody else could and that nobody else would. And you'll see that as we get through our text this morning. Let's sort of set the stage with it by beginning at verse 12, Mark chapter 14, where we read, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went out and came into the city And found it was just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Jesus is now in the final hours of his life before he'll go to the cross and face a cruel crucifixion. But before he'll be crucified, before he'll be put on trial, before Pilate and various high priests, before Jesus will be arrested and beaten and mocked, before he'll even be betrayed, Jesus will have a very important meal with his disciples. Now, it's far more than a normal meal. It's far more than a normal meal, first of all, in what Jesus said and did at that meal, but it's also far more than a normal meal in just the occasion that it was. Verse 12 tells us that it was Passover. Now, Passover was a very and is a very important date on the Jewish calendar. It's the most significant ceremonial family meal of the year. If you're unfamiliar with how important Passover is in the Jewish mind and back in Jesus' day, how important it was in their mind, think of it sort of along the lines of Thanksgiving. A very important family holiday where everybody should be someplace at Thanksgiving, right? When you drive by Jack in the Box on Thanksgiving and you see some cars out there, you feel very sad, don't you? It just shouldn't be that way on Thanksgiving. Everybody should be in a home. Everybody should be around family. And you should remember with Thanksgiving the great things that God has done. Well, that's what Passover was. And specifically, what they came together to remember was the great work of God in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt in the time of Moses. Jesus had a passion in his heart to celebrate this, disi- this Passover with his disciples. And so it had to be prepared. He wanted just the right setting. It had to be the right room. It had to be the right food. It had to be the right arrangements within the room. And so Jesus set it up beforehand. And now on the critical day, he tells the disciples, okay, go and get the room. And so I said, well, we didn't arrange anything. And Jesus said, that's okay, I did. Go, and you're going to see a man walking through the streets of Jerusalem there, and he'll have a pitcher on his head. And say, well, a big jug of water sort of thing, carrying it. You've seen that in pictures, right? A guy, Somebody carrying a jug of water. Now, what's interesting about that is that in that culture, men did not traditionally carry jugs of water. Men would carry liquids in wineskins. That was a woman's work to carry it in a jug of water. I don't really understand why, but it was some cultural distinctive thousands of years ago. In other words, it would have been unusual for the disciples to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. So when they saw it, they knew that's the guy to go ask. And so they went up and they asked the man and they said, well, what about the guest room? And is it all prepared? And the man said, yes. And he opened it up and he showed it and the disciples got there and they prepared the Passover because Jesus wanted it just perfect for what's going to take place beginning at verse 17. Let's look. In the evening, he came with the 12. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me Will betray me. When Jesus said that, it must have hit the disciples like a ton of bricks. They must have said, Did he just say what I thought he said? Picture the setting here. You've got 13 men in a room, 12 disciples, and Jesus himself. And they're all sitting in the room eating a dinner. Now they're not sitting around a table at chairs as we would because that was not the cultural way that they would enjoy a meal back then, especially a fancy meal. They would eat with the food set upon what we would consider to be like a low coffee table. And they would put the dishes of food on there and everybody didn't have their own individual plate. There was just several dishes and people would take food out of the dishes and put it on a piece of bread or eat it. And most importantly, it was a very relaxed atmosphere. One of the things that made it so relaxed was people were sort of reclining at the table. They didn't sit down at a table in chairs. Rather, at this low coffee table, there would be pillows and cushions and blankets spread all about, and you would sort of lay down, reclining on your side, resting on your right elbow, you know, with your forearm down. And then you would just sort of reach over with your right hand over to the table and pick up food and enjoy conversation and have a wonderful time. That was a formal meal in Jesus's day. So you got this picture sort of in your mind? There they are just having a wonderful time enjoying this. Now, it's not just any meal. It's Passover. And the Passover meal had a distinct liturgy. It had a distinct pattern that had to be followed it opened with a specific prayer and they had specific marking points through and specific explanations and one of the great traditions was the youngest one at the table had to ask questions of the head of the household and he would answer and all of it was designed around remembering the great redemption that god had won in bringing the children of israel out of egypt For 2,000 years, the children of Israel had been remembering this from Passover. And that's exactly what Jesus does. If you notice, it says here that there they are in the evening, came with the 12. And as they sat, Jesus ate. And what does he say to them? He says, well, one of you is going to betray me. Now, this must have just absolutely shocked them. Jesus, all 12 of us have followed you for three years. We know each other pretty well. We know each other too well. We're kind of annoyed with each other by now. We know every disgusting habit everybody else has. We know how we think. We know how we act. We have lived together in sort of a traveling commune for three years. And now you say that one of us is going to betray you? Look at what they respond with in verse 19. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? You know what I think is really fascinating about this? Is that each one of them asked, is it I? In other words, they didn't immediately suspect another disciple. This shows that they had some measure of respect one for another. In other words, you can just imagine Peter You know, there he is at the table, and he's eating, and Jesus said this. And Peter almost chokes on his food. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know what to say. And then he looks around, and, well, there's John. And he thinks, could it be John? No, not John. I know him. Well, well, how about Bartholomew? No, not him. "Uh, Nathaniel? No, forget about it. "Uh, uh, Judas? No, not Judas. We trust him the most. He keeps the money bad. Andrew? Well, he's my own brother. You know, and he goes, he "He can't figure anyone. And so when he gets through the whole list, he says, well, maybe it 's me, so he asks, "Is it I, Lord?" You know what I think is interesting is apparently even Judas asked, "Is it I?" He knew it was him, but he asked the question: Maybe he just didn 't want to seem out of place, right? To be the only guy who didn 't ask, "Is it I?" It also shows that Judas was not obvious in the state of his heart at all. Because when when Jesus said this, all the disciples didn't immediately point and say, Judas. No, nobody knew. They thought, is it I? And look at what Jesus says. Then he answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. I wonder if Jesus said those words, looking right at Judas. Now, if he did, I don't think he made it too obvious. You know, I don't think Jesus was staring him down when he said it. That would have tipped the other disciples off, wouldn't it? But I can imagine that as Jesus scanned around and said those words, that he made at least fleeting eye contact with Judas. And in that fleeting moment, Judas knew something. He knew that this was an opportunity to turn back. This was an opportunity to repent. You know, God loves us so much that even when we are set on a sinful course, he'll give us an opportunity to escape. Remember that passage in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians where he says, no temptation that has overtaken you, there is no temptation that has overtaken you, except which is common to man. And whenever the temptation comes, God will provide a way of escape. That you may, well, this was Judas's way of escape. Jesus was looking at him and saying, Judas, I'm warning you right now. If you betray me, it'll be worse for you than if you were ever born. Don't do it. But Judas saw that look of love in the eyes of Jesus and he turned off his own awareness. He turned off his own sensitivity to it and he hardened his heart a little bit more. That's the real danger of pushing Jesus away. It's the real danger of when Jesus speaks to your heart and and warns you about something going on in your life and and when you push him away a little bit more is it creates just a little bit of hardness, a, a little bit of callousness in your heart. And it's just that much easier to push him away the next time and the next time and the next time. And Judas is at such a hardened, callous place at this point where Jesus can give him the most solemn warning we can imagine, and yet Judas will just push it away. But Jesus has more that he wants to say to the disciples. Look at it here, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I think it's very interesting to understand something here again, that this was a Passover meal. And at this Passover meal, Jesus took some bread and he broke and he said, Gentlemen, This bread is my body. Take and eat it. And then he took a cup and he said, Gentlemen, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I want you to take it and drink it. Now, it's interesting that Jesus gave a significance to the bread and a significance to the cup. But what's interesting was that the bread and the cup would have already had significance because this was a Passover meal. Matter of fact, at the Passover meal... Almost every item of food on the table had a significance. You see, when they broke the bread, this was a formal prayer that they would pray. The head of the household, he would break the bread and he would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat and let everyone who is needy come and eat of the Passover meal. And then he would distribute the bread. So Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, And he says, gentlemen, I know you're expecting me to say that this bread is the bread of affliction with our fathers ate, but I'm not going to say that. This bread, now I want you to think of it as my body. Take it and eat it. Now they had many ceremonial sips of wine at the uh, Passover meal. And so they were doing it. One sip of wine was a a picture of one thing and another symbolized another thing and another represented another thing. Jesus takes one of those sips of wine and he says, gentlemen, I know that every Passover we hold this cup up and we say, this is the cup of, he says, but I'm going to tell you what this cup is now. This is the cup of my blood of the new covenant. Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of each of the foods, you see, at the Passover table, there's many different foods there. You, you, you have the, the, the bitter herbs there, and that's to recall the bitterness of slavery. And you have the salt water, that's to remember the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. You have the main course of the meal, the, the, the lamb that was flesh, freshly sacrificed for the particular household. And that didn't symbolize anything connected with the agonies of Egypt. The lamb symbolized the sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over that household that believed back in the days of the Exodus. And see what Jesus is saying. It's a new Passover. It's a new deliverance. Well, We're not talking about delivering people from the bondage of Egypt anymore. I'm talking about delivering people from the bondage of sin and death and the tyranny that it holds over men. I'm not bringing you the old covenant that Moses instituted on Mount Sinai. I'm bringing you a new covenant. And friends, that's what Jesus did that nobody else could do. Nobody. There's never been a single human being that's walked planet Earth that could institute a new covenant. How would you like it if, well, let's say at the barbecue that we have after second service here this morning. And there in the midst of it all, I stand up and I I have a, well, I suppose we'll be drinking soda pop there, and I I have a glass of soda pop, and I say, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that with this cup of soda pop, I am instituting a new covenant between God and man. You'd look at me and you'd say, he's finally cracked. (laughs) We expected this for quite a while. Now it's the breaking point. You'd say, who does he think he is? That he's going to come along and say, I will declare a new covenant, a new contract, a new agreement, a new way for you to come to God. See, only the son of God himself could do that. Only Jesus Christ could come and say, now, instead of coming by the blood of a sacrificed animal, now we're going to come because of the blood of what this cup represents. Instead of coming on the basis of an animal that had its body broken, no, now we're going to come because of my body that's been broken. I'm coming to bring a new covenant to you. Now, it was a new covenant, but it wasn't a new thought. Because the thought of the new covenant didn't begin at the Last Supper. The thought of the new covenant began way back in the Old Testament when the prophets said it's coming. Jeremiah said a new covenant's coming. Ezekiel said a new covenant's coming. I love what Jeremiah says about it. He says that that it's a covenant that will bring in an inner transformation that will cleanse us from all sin. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Don't you want that? Don't you want God to forget about your sin? You want your family to forget about your sin, don't you? You want your friends to forget about your sins? How much better it is to have God in heaven forget about your sin. Now, please don't think that God loses his memory in heaven. It's not that at all. It's that God says, no, the price has been paid. I can put away all remembrance of that person's sin. Another feature of the new covenant is described in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. It speaks about the transformation that puts God's word and God's will in us. This is what it says. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. You know, friends, I tell you, it's wonderful to have God's word in a book, isn't it? And I hope that you value your Bible. I don't want you to treat it as a superstitious thing, as if you have to have like a little altar at home with a candle burning in front of it, and that's where you set your Bible. No, your Bible's a useful tool, and you should use it as a tool. But even more important than having the Bible written on a page is having it written in your heart. The Word of God, the will of God written in your heart. Don't you want that? Jesus says this is the new covenant. Jeremiah also said that this covenant would be about a new, close relationship with God. He said, I will be their God, and they shall be my people under the terms of the new covenant. And don't you want that? Don't you want a new, close relationship with God? Oh, you've known him, but perhaps just kind of from afar. You need to embark on the greatest adventure of all, and that's knowing God been amazing in years past how movies or television programs have really enticed people with the idea of meeting and knowing extraterrestrial beings. And certain television programs or famous movies really promote this idea. And there's something within us that is attracted to that idea of the incredible adventure there would be in meeting somebody and getting to know somebody from a distant world. Friends, you know what it is within us that responds to that? It's our hunger to know God. God is the one who can really fulfill that need. God is the one from another place who says, know me Come into relationship with me. I'll forgive your sins. I'll put a new heart within you. That's the new covenant. And Jesus is saying, right here, right now, I am instituting that new covenant. So don't you see, every time we take communion together, we're remembering that new covenant. Our relationship with God is based on a covenant, on a promise that Jesus Christ made. And that's a secure place for our relationship to be. Now, what I think is so fascinating about this is how strong this is, how dramatic this is, how how emphatically Jesus placed it, how he really wanted them to remember the strength of the new covenant. And every time they ate bread and drank of that cup together in this way, they would be reminded of it. Jesus really wanted to impress it on them because the greatness of the new covenant is that it's founded on the strength and the goodness of God not on the strength and the goodness of man. Now let me demonstrate how this is true because we're going to see the strength and the goodness of man fade away in a few verses. But the new covenant remains. We'll see what I mean. Let's take a look here. Now starting again at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let me stop right there know, that's an absolutely unique verse in the entire Bible. As far as I know, that's the only place in the Bible where we read that Jesus sang. Isn't it wonderful to think of Jesus singing? To think of what his voice must have sounded like. Now, some people think, You know, if Jesus sings, man, it must sound like Pavarotti out there, you know, projecting it all across. I mean, well, no, you know, he was a simple man. Maybe he sang off keys. No, no, he's perfect. He couldn't sing off key. But then we wonder, what did it sound like? Nobody knows. I'll tell you, far, far more important than, than what the sound of his voice was. I think we should understand that he sang with more than his voice. He sang with his heart. Jesus lifted his voice in song to God in praise and adoration of the Lord. Now, why did he do that? Because Jesus was just sort of a singing kind of guy? Well, I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but I don't believe that's why he sang. He sang for a simple reason, because he knew that the Bible tells us that God the Father likes to be worshipped, likes to be honored with singing. And if God likes it, then we should do it. You know, sometimes when we come to church, I think we take too much for granted. We don't ask questions that maybe we should ask. Maybe you've asked these questions or maybe not. But let me just say, if you came in here for the very first time, and you were here with us from the very beginning of our service. I think you had every reason in the world to say, why did they sing? I mean, is it just to make them happy? What's the whole purpose behind it? In our culture, people don't get together and sing together in a whole lot of settings other than church. And it's a fair question to ask. Well, why? Well, let me explain to you why. It's because God likes it when we sing. You say, well, listen, I know that God likes it, but I don't like it when I sing, and other people don't like it when I sing. So that's why I don't sing. No, but you're missing the point. God likes it when we sing, and that's why you should sing songs of praise and honor and glory to God, not because you like it, Not because the people around you like it, but because he likes it. You say, well, what if you don't like it? Then, you know, you don't want to do it because you don't like it. Well, don't you know that when you love somebody, you will do things for them, even if you don't like to do them? This is a principle husbands know in married life. I think of the analogy of a husband going with his wife, the mall for a day of shopping. It doesn't make any sense how excruciating it is. What is it? You're spending a pleasant day with your wife, walking around seeing things. There should be a thousand things to interest you, right? It shouldn't be an unpleasant experience at all. But most any man can tell you it's torturous. It's not just torturous. It's exhausting. I don't know what it is. It's just like all the energy just sort of seems to drain from me when I do. And then there's no good reason for it. I mean, I think through it logically. It's like, look, I'm with my wife. It's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful time. This should be no problem at all. But it is. Now, I would say, perhaps on many of those occasions, I would not like to be there. But you say, no, because this pleases someone I love, I do choose to be there. Friends, the same principle comes to when you sing honor and praise and adoration to God. If you don't like to do it, let me say it as kindly as I can. Get over it. He likes it. And he's the one you're lifting up. He's the one you want to please. Now, if you will never do something for somebody to please them, to honor them, to, to make them happy. Honestly, isn't it hard to say that you love that person very much? If you love them, you'll do what they say they like. And God likes it when we sing. And I say, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can overcome it. I, I just don't feel like singing so often. And then I think of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. And I wonder, how could he ever feel like singing? He knew that in less than 24 hours, matter of fact, at this point, you're probably talking about, oh, anywhere from 12 to 14 hours away from this time, he was going to be hanging on a cruel cross. He knew that. And yet he could sing. How many of us would excuse you? Jesus, you don't have to sing tonight. You you can just keep yourself content with your own thoughts. Jesus sang. He sang because his heart was filled with worship and praise and honor to God. And so it says there in verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You see, to do that, they would have to leave town. And probably when Jesus had this dinner with his disciples, it was sort of up on one of the ridges that's sort of up over the Temple Mount, And so they would have had to walk down through the Central Valley and up over the Temple Mount area and then down through the Kidron Valley up over to the Mount of Olives. You're talking about probably about a half hour walk that they would have made. During this time, Jesus talking with his disciples. Maybe they're singing a bit as they go. It's late at night, but there they are making their way through the streets of Jerusalem and they go over to the Mount of Olives. In verse 27, And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, when they all ate dinner together, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Now he says to the disciples, all of you are going to forsake me. One will betray, all will forsake Now, isn't it interesting that the disciples hear this, and it must have been amazing to them. Jesus, what are you talking about? Nobody's going to betray you. We're your followers. Forsake you while we're on your side, Jesus. Haven't we been through things together before? Haven't we come through before you time and time again? We're not going to forsake you, Jesus. But he says, you will do it because it's written, you'll do it, because Jesus knew their hearts. Peter was stubborn. Peter knew, no, I would never do that. That's what he says in verse 29. But Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Remember in the upper room? when Jesus gave Judas the opportunity to change his mind and repent, don't you think he's kind of doing the same thing for Peter right here? Oh, no, Jesus. No, no, I would never forsake you. No, no, I'll even die for you. But don't you think that at the same time at that point, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, humble yourself. Come to a more settled state of mind in me. Don't you know, Peter, that you're weaker than you think you are? But Peter didn't respond either, verse 31. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Let me ask you a question about verse 31. When Peter said that, when Peter said it with all of his strength, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. When Peter said that, do you think he meant it? Oh, I do. I think he meant it with all of us. I think he felt like that at the moment. And if they would have come to arrest Jesus right at that moment, I think Peter would have laid down his life. But the problem was it was an hour or two until they came to arrest Jesus. And the way Peter felt right then and the way he felt in a couple hours was completely different. You know, friends, that's what it's like when we live our life on feelings. Sometimes you're going to be feeling high and strong and mighty, and that's great. But when you feel weak, you'll fall prey to the weakness. No, instead of trusting in his own feelings, Peter should have been trusting in Jesus and humbling himself and believing the word that Jesus spoke, but he didn't. What I want you to see in all of this is that the new covenant that Jesus made was still plenty sufficient to save Peter because it was based on what Jesus did, on what he would do. You know, if we were Jesus, we might have said, listen, you guys are going to forsake me and you're too stupid to see it. Well, then fine, I'm washing my hands of you. I can find followers other places. Guys a lot sharper than you. Jesus didn't. He looked at these men and he loved them. And he said, you'll you'll yield to me. I'll do my great work in you because it's based on my covenant in you. Something that Jesus did that nobody else could do, established this great new covenant. Peter thought he could kind of make his own deal with God based on his own strength. Jesus says, no, you'll only come to me based on this new covenant. So, Friends, let me conclude with that right now this morning. Where are you at? you trying to make your own deal with God think God has a private negotiation with you? He really doesn't. He says, I've got a new covenant based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. You come to me based on that new covenant. Do you want to relate to God right now based on that new covenant? Now, maybe for some of you, you've never done that before and you need to come for the first time and say, okay, God, no more cutting my own deals with you. I'm going to come on the new covenant. But maybe some of you. You started out on the new covenant. Now you're trying to make your own way. Now you're trying to do your own thing. You're like Peter. You think you can do your own thing before God. Well, it's time to say, no, Lord. It's new covenant or nothing. That's the kind of walk I want to have before you. Let's uh, take just a little bit of time now. I'm going to conclude in prayer and then let's worship. And as we worship, I don't want you just to bring your voice before God, although we must do that, shouldn't we? Bring your heart before him. Think carefully about the words of the songs and bring your heart and sacrifice and dedication to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as a people and we want very much, Lord, to be a new covenant people before you. Not relying on ourself, not relying on our feelings, not relying on who we are or what vows we might make to you. Lord, we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, on the new covenant that he instituted that night in the upper room and, and that he's sealed at the cross. Father, I pray that every seeking heart would find some refuge in you, that you'd comfort the hurting. I pray, Lord, that you'd comfort those who feel like failures before you, these disciples would feel like failures. Well, Lord, you lifted them up. You can lift up us up as well. Do this great work, Lord, and minister to us as we minister unto you in song. In Jesus' name.